Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, getting used to that. Cool. Uh, hi everybody and welcome to the show. This week I am joined by Chris Mora out of Bozeman. And uh, let's see, the first time I ran into you was actually at, I think actually I ran into you the first time at Pride. Um, you were there as a uh, ally. Yes. yes. Yeah. Cool. Um, we like those. We like those <laughs> a lot. So uh, you've been following the show for a while and you've been in politics for a long time. You're in college at MSU. Yes? Yeah, that's correct. So what got you into politics? Um, one of my high school graduation presents was the Audacity of Hope. Mm. And my family has a poor history with med on the medical side of things, on my dad's side. So Barack Obama's story about his mom's health care problems and health insurance companies. And I really fell over the health care chapter of his book and got involved in his campaign and then just kind of took off from there. Wanted to stay involved. so. Got involved with the college Dems and the county Dems. Very cool. And so where are you from? Uh, well, I was originally born in San Antonio. Ah. Then my mom moved to Missoula, and then we moved a few more places in Montana, but I claim to be from Belt, Montana. From Belt, with the lovely Belgian white beer. Yes, yes. <laughs> one, one of the many great things the town offers. <laughs> Very cool. So politics is, uh, you fell in love with the healthcare. Was that your first exposure to politics, or were you involved in... Um, I think a lot of people in my generation were introduced to politics with the Iraq War um, and with through 9-11. Um, I kind of started following 9-11 and the Iraq War after 9-11, so mm -hmm. started there. So probably somewhere around seventh grade is when I became really interested in it. And, and you fall to the left. Yes, yes. I, <laughs> Very much to the left. Um, and you've continued that forward. Now you're volunteer with the Democrats? In Galveston? Yeah, yeah. I um, volunteer for candidates that I support on their policy issues. Very cool. So who are the candidates that you're uh, working with currently? Um, I volunteered for Frankie Wilmer a little bit over on her congressional race, and then now with her House District 63 race. Um, and then a lot of the seats in Bozeman are more or less safer seats outside of 63. Or Bozeman's kind of weird. 63 is a seat where... It can swing either way, but other than 63, a lot of the seats in the Senate and the House are either blue or red. There's really? Really not a lot of chances of them changing. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll see if it stays that way after 14. But um, I've also been helping a candidate in Arizona, Kirsten Sinema, hmm. who's running for the new congressional district there, and she's in a really big three-way primary, oh, which wow. is going to conclude at the end of this month. Ah, so working with campaigns in two different states, what, what's the difference between them, or is there much difference? Um, I guess I don't think there's a lot of difference. I think volunteering is volunteering. Um, but I guess the amount you can actually feel like you're part of the campaign when you volunteer in person, you get to meet other volunteers and talk about your experience. And shockingly enough, there's a lot of people in Bozeman volunteering for a congressional race in Arizona. <laughs> I can't imagine why. <laughs> Arizona being so far away. So um, as you have been involved in these races, have you thought about actually running your own campaign, running for office at some point? Um, I've thought about it, but I'd, I like the wonkish side of politics, I guess, more. And I like the study of it more than I think I would enjoy actually running a race. Mm. Um, or running for an office. Running a race could be fun, but not running as myself. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your favorite part of the campaigns that you've been dealing with so far? Um, I, mean, I think it's because of through, through healthcare, the moral and ethical side, I think is really what drew me into politics. It seemed ethical 
that people should provide health care for people that can't afford it if it's severe. Mm. Um, and that's what draws me to all the candidates that I support is they stand on good moral principles. And that's what I, why I think you should volunteer and why people should be voting <laughs> more the moral reasons behind it. That's cool. So you've, you've got a varied interest in politics and you've got a good background in it. Is it something that your family shares or are you the lone political one? Um, the- my mom's fairly apolitical. I mean, she votes every year. Um, but it's not as, she's not a big volunteer for campaigns or anything, voting to the extent. And then I don't know if my dad's very involved down in Texas. He lives in San Antonio. Hmm. Um, he's getting more involved, I think, as he gets older, just finding more time to do it. Um, but me and my parents differ a lot in terms of politics, which <laughs> makes me a rare person. But <laughs> No, I, I get into it with my parents all the time. I'm, I'm far more liberal than they'll ever be. <laughs> yeah, my, my dad's a Tea Party conservative, and my mom's a... She still thinks the liberal base, the Republican Party, can come back. So she votes more so in Republican primaries and uh, then tends to vote for Democrats in generals. Hmm, interesting. Um, yeah, both my parents are Republicans. So. <laughs> <laughs> Dad's somewhat uh, well, partier. Yeah, the, the political science says we're our people in this world. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, oppositional defiant disorder. We're Montanans. We don't <laughs> listen to our parents. Um, so... I guess, what are the big things? That, obviously, healthcare is a big thing that's, that's still on the table. It passed in the last year, and then they've had, what, 30 attempts to repeal it in the House? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's almost... Comical? Almost like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're only going to be working 13 days, I think, through election, is what a report that came out yesterday said. Yeah. Don't they go... Doesn't the session end in, like, two weeks? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's pathetic. Yeah, you think when you're when you're chastising everyone and essentially waging a war on poor people, you would follow your own credo and work. But <laughs> maybe work a full forty. <laughs> yeah, hey, you know. Uh, yeah, it is kind of funny. Um, let's talk about some of the issues, some of the other issues that are coming up though that that have piqued your interest or uh, made you volunteer. Um, I mean, uh, immigration being half Latin American is something that I care a lot about. Um, fortunately, in Montana, it really shouldn't be an issue, but for some reason, last legislature made it one. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah. You know, the, the only immigration we usually get is Canadians. Yeah, I mean, when you're talking about, talking about Montana, in the United States, if you include the District of Columbia, which for this purpose, we'll give it, make it a 51st state. Okay. If you include the District of Columbia, Montana actually ranks... 51st for foreign-born Hispanics in population. So we're, we're, we're dead last. We have 14 bills to address this problem. <laughs> it's, it's obviously a massive problem that we just don't know how to deal with because we're dead last. Yeah. Oh, leave it to our legislature. <laughs> the last legislature was such a mess. It was, it was the, the culmination of uh, several policies that sound good at the same time or at, at different times. But when you add them all together, we ended up with last legislature. And it's just like, oh, I can't believe these people are elected. Much less that we let them into my town. Being from Helena, they all show up and it's like, oh, the legislature's in town. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Helena Helena's an interesting place during session. You guys, your town actually did pretty well. I mean, Liz Bangard or wasn't great by any means, but she also wasn't as bad as some of the rest of them. No, and she was, yeah, pretty much milk toast. Um, we, you know, talking about some of the people that we had, what was funny is we ended up with some really good Republicans last year 
in in odd places. Mike Miller's a good example. Uh, Steve Gibson's a good example of just really good. You know, have a good head on their shoulders. They tend to be right on a lot of issues, or they tend to be leaning to the right on a lot of issues. Not that they're correct all the time, but um, but very competent, skilled, well thought, um, and uh, easy to work with people. And then you had the rest of them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, Steve Gibson's from East Helena. He's uh, my district. And he, you know, I voted for him. I think he's a great guy. Uh, I just, I, I can't imagine that we're going to get somebody better than him when he's turned out. And then I look at, you know, what we have in the other districts in the area, and I'm like, oh, God, why? <laughs> Where did these people come from? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of them just don't have the ability to carry on a conversation that's actually going to be constructive. Like, there doesn't seem to be a reason besides winning an argument that they well, talk it, politics. That's because they don't see, they don't even legitimize the other side. They, they, they consider anything that is outside of their viewport, uh, view range. Uh, Purview, that's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> Anything that's outside of their purview and their outlook on life is wrong. And there's no compromise with wrong with them. They don't realize that the world isn't black and white. Mm -hmm. it'll be, I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens with the result of their elections. Because I think there, there are some good conservative Republicans that are actually thoughtful. I mean, I think um, Jeff Wellborn and Rob Cook gave some good floor speeches when it came to pro-choice issues and mm -hmm. um, talk about what are we doing? We're not talking about the economy, which is essentially what I think led the big Tea Party revolution. Right. They're like, don't tread on me. Don't tax, <laughs> tax me so much. But you can't do this. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I think they just need to start remembering that I think originally politics was, at least in this country, was created as a remedy. And people don't search for remedies. They search for being right now. Right. Ugh. Yes, welcome, welcome to our current state of politics. So, uh, are you doing anything with the, the legislative race for Frankie? Let me try that again. Are you, other than volunteering, are you working with Frankie to, in her legislative race, just volunteering, or are you doing more there? Um, I'm just a volunteer at the as, moment. As much as you can. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. It's it's interesting. I you know I was I thought she was a great candidate for the House race. I think the Democrats put up an amazing field um, of the was it. 200 people they had running. <laughs> uh, there, seven or eight. I think there were four that were fully capable of doing that job and doing it really well that were um, just astounding that they were willing to be a part of that field. And then, um, you know, of course, Kim won, and I think that she has a great chance of winning. I think she's a great candidate. Um, but then, you know, to know that those other three or four that were just as good as her mm -hmm. uh, are out of races was really disheartening. And then to see Frankie, you know, have a race that magically appeared, that was kind of awesome. And that she was willing to step into it. Yeah, I think... Because I know it was exhausting. Yeah, Frankie deserves a lot of kudos for that. I think it takes a big person to just have lost a race that you put a lot of your heart and soul into. Yeah. And then, I mean, it's not a guaranteed win in 63 to step into a race that you know is going to be another tough fight it out till the end style of race and right and that's the one flip floppy district yeah yeah i don't wow. think it's been decided by more than 100 votes in the last three elections oh wow 
that's going to be a tough, tough race. So uh, people who need to volunteer, if you have some extra time, <laughs> if you want to see a Democrat in that seat. Um, so the, the fun part of politics has always been, you know, these are the issues that are coming up. And we've got some interesting ones that are on the ballot this year. You want to talk about them? Um, sure. Okay. Um, we've got, uh, well, let's start with the one that I don't even know if it's on the ballot. It's just the one that won't go away, medical <laughs> marijuana. <laughs> Where do you see this issue playing out? Is it something that we're going to be able to get solved in the legislature? Or is it simply something that's going to fall back to the citizens again and continue to be a mess? Um, I mean, I don't, with, with the attitude that was taken in the last legislature, I don't see the Republican, or I don't see branch of the Republican Party breaking away from it. I think it will always be something that a certain sect of them will bring up. Um, I mean, ultimately, part of me thinks that it's going to have to have some action by the, on the federal level before it's completely going to go away. Right. Um, when it's just being talked about on the state level, though, in my opinion, if the citizens have voted on it as an initiative, it should that should be the be-all, end-all of it. I mean, I don't think the legislature should be overturning citizen initiatives, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. See, I have a differing opinion on that just because I watched what happened with Prop 8 because I was in California mm -hmm. at the time that it happened, and that's when I realized that because the citizens' initiative allows them to act like a mob and actually change the Constitution, I was like, uh, this is why we ambiguate it and we step away from having direct control of the democracy because... Cooler heads should prevail in most of those situations. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, the Citizens Initiative, I wasn't here when it passed. Um, so I kind of stepped into the middle of it, and I thought it was interesting that we had it. I think, you know, from a personal perspective, I think it's ridiculous that marijuana is illegal. Just, you know, make it legal and tax it. I don't care. Um, mostly because, you know, if you look at, at, at countries like Portugal who have really revamped their entire idea, they no longer have a war on drugs. They don't even have criminalization of drugs anymore. And their drug use has plummeted. It's absolutely gone through the floor. Nobody uses drugs anymore because there's, you know, they don't have to. They get the help that they need in order to stop using drugs. Mm -hmm. And their court system is less. Their jail system is less. Their cost to living of living is less because all of these things have gone down. Their property values have gone up. Their neighborhoods are better. All of the things that we're trying to do with this war on drugs, they found the answer, and it was don't declare war. <laughs> you know, stand up, be adults, and get medical help for these people that need it. And, you know, I, I honestly think that we're going to have to, at some point, grow up and realize that that's <laughs> what we're going to have to do. And, yeah, it's a shocking thing, and it's a horrible thing for a politician to have to say, look, I know you think this is a problem, but the solution is not to fight back. Yeah. I mean, I think there was a really interesting book that came out about a year and a half ago, and I read a few of the reviews, and there was a podcast on it that Planet Money did where they talked with the guy that wrote it. Um, but he was talking about the similarities with when Prohibition was removed, um, right. that we needed to find another revenue source. And it um, seems that the way the times are when you put the repeal of prohibition, then look at the current economic climate now, it seems like maybe finding another revenue source might be ultimately what allows... Right. And if you look at, and I have some friends that are potheads, let's be honest. I went to college here in town. There were, I met many of them here. So, um, but they're fully functional and it's not like they're out. I've never seen anybody on pot get in a fight. You know, I've never seen anybody on pot become violent. That just isn't what happens. I've seen them become nappy. <laughs> they're going to take a nap. <laughs> That's what, that may be the wrong time, but they're going to take a nap. Um, 
I, you know, it's just the level of crazy that goes into some of the stuff that we do politically is, is all about, you know, appeasing this angry segment of society. And we've got this new angry segment that's angry at taxes, but they're not angry at the military industrial complex, which is our largest expense. You know, they're angry at these so-called entitlements like social security. I'm like, social security is an entitlement. We all pay into that. Mm-hmm. And we've paid in more than it's ever paid out. So therefore, it's not even an expense. So how can you be complaining about that? It's a really good question that <laughs> I, I clearly don't have the answer to. No, I, 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 that's just it. I, neither do they, and they're the ones complaining. I mean, it's not like you're complaining about it. No, no, I think the... They complain about the debt while simultaneously complain about taxes and complain about the job market. And then they... Well, for, shopping for, at Walmart. Yeah, and then they shop at Walmart, and they vote for Republicans. And if the last 51 years are any indicator, the Democrats are pretty good at the economy, despite the record we have. I mean... Well, it's the reputation. It's not even the record. The record actually shows that the Democrats are pretty good at the economy. It's the reputation that they spend it on. With with 23 years compared to 28 years that the Republicans have had in the last 51 years, the Democrats have nearly doubled non-government jobs when you compare the administrations Mm. while spending less money. Yeah, and um, actually, this just came out, was it, I think it was this morning, actually, when I was coursing through Twitter, a friend of mine pointed out that as of today, we have the smallest federal government in 45 years. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty impressive, um, for especially for these people that are complaining that we have too much government. Well, if we have the smallest that we've had in 45 years, why would you vote for anybody who make government bigger? I would look at George W. Bush. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, he kind of of created a whole, whole Homeland Security think that we now need a, need a secretary for. <laughs> and the TSA. <laughs> My favorite people in the whole world. Actually, it's funny. Every time I go and fly, I feel bad because I complain about the TSA as an organization a ton. But I know a bunch of people that work for them. And they're good people. They're nice people. And, you know, they're doing their job. They're doing what they can. And But, wow, some of the, it's the policies of the TSA that are just crazy. Yeah. Uh, the TSA makes me happy that I don't travel very often. <laughs> I'm sure. And, you know, okay, so racial profiling. Uh, should we talk about it? <laughs> sure. Why it's, not? It's gone on. Um, it's been weird. There was a tweet that went out um, from, I think it was Amy Berg. She's one of the writers of... Uh, a couple of really amazing shows. I think our most recent one is um, Person of Interest. Um, which works it on? Uh, ABC, I think. Maybe CBS. I don't know. It's it's a really interesting show. Well well written. And she did. Um, she was a writer on Eureka and on um, Leverage. Oh, very nice. So you know, very talented writer. And um, where was I going with this? Oh, she she pointed out that. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was her. She pointed out that we've been racially profiling all the people with the wrong colored skin because if you look at the mass shootings, it's all been white boys. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, it's so true. But I guess, that, you know, I, I, have you seen, um, what was the movie? Copycat with Sigourney Weaver? It was not. about the serial killer who was copying all the other serial oh. killers. Um, but they were talking about the statistics on serial killers and it's always a white male that's 25 to 35 years old and, you know, mentally Mm -hmm. damaged, but it's always a white male. (laughs) It's like, well, I'm now terrified to walk down the street if there's a white guy by me and I'm a white guy. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I'm going to get a couple of Mexicans to come with me. All all of Montana should be terrified. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Not of me. I'm a nice guy. Leave me alone. Um, yeah, so it's weird. And then have you had to deal with that? I mean, you're half Latino. Um... I guess I was more, I have more of my mother's pigmentation than my father's, so it's never really been a 
big thing for me. Mm. And um, I guess I was lucky that I, when I was growing up in Belt, it was never an issue. So I haven't experienced the negative side. Well, I don't. I don't think there's negative side. But I haven't experienced the bad parts of it. That's so, cool. Yeah. And I always wonder about that. Being a white male, you know, I'm privileged in many ways in our society, but being gay cuts into it a little bit. And, like, you heard what happened in Missoula over the weekend. Yeah. You know, the kid goes out for his 22nd birthday and gets gay bashed in Missoula. I mean, I think this is... I think a lot of this can be, be tied back to kind of to our, our discussion we're having on tax policy and how if you compare the records and things... It doesn't add up. I mean, there's just so much vitriolic, vitriolic rhetoric right now that people mm-hmm. don't actually understand what they're saying or why they're saying it, or if it even makes sense to say it. And then people eat it up as if it's the truth. Um, and act on it. And act on it. I mean, I don't know. I haven't been paid attention. It's kind of something I didn't really want to look into. But I haven't seen if any of the House leadership have come out and said we were wrong for defending Michelle Bachman when she was saying we need to be investigating Muslim Americans or people with ties to the Muslim Brotherhood after this shooting where it seems like they were targeted solely because of the Sikh temple they went to. Yeah. Um, um, what was the... Um, I don't think any of the leadership has either. I think... I know a couple of uh, different senators have come out and said it, and I know a couple of people have stepped up to the defense of... Um, Abdin. Yeah, I can remember that. Uh, Thank yes, you. Senator McCain was actually great when he went to did that. And then right. I, I know Cantor went on, I don't know if it was State of the Union or meet the, I think it was State of the Union and defended Michelle Bachman after the init, but I haven't heard anything from them since then. Not to make political head of a catastrophe, but I think it's, somebody in leadership from the House Republicans should come out and say, with this happening and clearly why they were targeted, our caucus shouldn't be doing things like this. I mean, clearly, they're elected by their district, so right. just because they're Republicans doesn't mean the leadership can tell them what they can and can't do. But coming out and condemning it, I think, as the party would be a good stance by them. Yeah, but I don't think... Okay, I think it would be a good stance. I think it would be a good thing to do as a human being. I don't oh. think they can do it as a party, but because, you know, that drives wedges and, and does other things politically. But I think, you know, a far better thing to do would be for Michelle Bachman to stand up and apologize for her stupid stance, but we all know that's not going <laughs> to happen because she's off staring into space with her crazy eyes. So, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's also incredibly ironic when you, when you look at the, the seven speakers they've announced so far for the convention they're having in Tampa, it's going to be one of the most diverse set of speakers, I think, at a party convention ever. I mean, there's going to be Susanna Martinez, who's a female Latin American governor. There's going to be Nikki Haley, an Indian American governor. There's going to be... Condoleezza Rice, black female, former Secretary of State. Right. And I would be shocked if Bobby Jindal doesn't speak at some point. Um, I mean, right. See, I thought the Repub- I think the Republicans have missed the boat. I think they had a really good chance to do something interesting if they had just nominated um, Condoleezza Rice. I think she'd make an amazing president. Isn't she pro-choice, though? She is pro-choice, and she's um, actually pro-gay. You know, um, but... That's part of the reason I think that she would be an amazing... I mean, she's she's generally conservative on a lot of things, and she wants to cut back on our spending, but she would cut it out of the military-industrial complex. She'd do some other things that wouldn't exactly follow what the left would like, <laughs> but she'd do a lot of things that the right wouldn't like either. And, you know, when you're middle of the road, that's kind of your choice. You have to walk that thin yellow line and go, <laughs> sorry, I'm going to piss some of you off. 
some of the time. Um, but I, I think from a perspective of her knowledge and um, what she can do and how she handled certain situations, especially because she was around for 9-11 and really did do a good job of keeping that, you know, keeping in line and dealing with everything the Secretary of State would have to deal with under that those situations, which would be a nightmare. And she did it with grace and style and everything that we could ever ask. That's what you want Americans to be when they're abroad. Mm-hmm. She's the ideal of that. And so I honestly think that she's a missed opportunity for the Republicans. Now, knowing that we've got Obama in there, who I do support, <laughs> I think it's okay that they miss that opportunity. <laughs> yeah, I mean, historically, the Secretary of State's office is really interesting. It used, like, in the beginning of the country, it was... It seems now like it's a career-ending position, where you become Secretary of State, and then... Never go you're, further. You're done. You're, you, you write books, and you give speeches, and occasionally step in to serve... As a surrogate. But I wonder if that's because the role is so is is as tough as the president and you're just done. Not because you're politically done, but because you don't want to do it anymore. Has anybody really expressed any desire after they've been Secretary of State to deal with that crap anymore? Um, well, a lot of people don't want Hillary Clinton to be done. But, uh, well, well, yeah, we don't want them to be done necessarily. And that's, that's kind of what I'm saying. I don't think that they're necessarily done, but they're, you know, mentally they're exhausted. Yeah, oh, I think, I think, please, I mean... Why don't vice presidents do the same thing then? I mean, everyone's speculating Biden's going to run in 16 still, and um, Gore ran after after Clinton after eight years. Yeah, Um, no. HW was. I mean, it seems like it seems like the job of vice president should also be somewhat mentally exhausting. Yeah, but all they do is you know break ties in the Senate. Yeah, I think. Well, well, there used to be. Conservative Democrats, well, there still are conservative Democrats. When it used to be liberal Republicans, I think it would have been a little right. easier. But, um, it's, it's definitely an interesting thing. I don't know why the president, you know, I, I, I know why the organization works the way it does. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't understand why the vice president's role has been diminished so much in the last, uh, well, of course, it wasn't under Cheney. <laughs> Cheney had a lot of power. But the actual, you know, role of the vice president seems to have diminished while the secretary of state has gone up. Secretary of defense is certainly much bigger than it used to be. Um, Postmaster general isn't even a uh, cabinet position anymore, although. So it's not a, I mean, think after the 50s, didn't that stop being a big reason to elect well, a president? Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, the, you know, the postmaster general was an interesting thing. But if you remember what the post office was, I love history. So if you remember what the post office was, it was the only way to communicate to the outer ports. If the post office as an organization were, you know, left out as a, you know, let out as a business. And instead, the postmaster general was just the head of communications and did things like, you know, making sure that our Internet works, making sure that we have phone service to rural America, did some of the stuff that the FCC does keeps tabs on it, all of that stuff that they used to do. And, you know, people forget that the postmaster was actually the spy master as well. There was no FBI. There was no CIA. <laughs> the only way the communication happened was it went through the post, and the postmaster could intercept it and find out things that were going on. That's <laughs> what he was doing. That's why it was cabinet post. So some of these things that have gone out of the cabinet are now coming up through the CIA or through, I guess it comes up through um, Homeland Security now, which seems like such a Russian name. Homeland Security. <laughs> yes. Just, uh, welcome to the homeland. Yeah. We will take care of you. Don't ask any questions. 
Um, but it, it does. It seems like an odd, an odd throwback to the '50s, and then we're going through this McCarthyism that's being led by Michelle Bachman, and we've got all this other stuff that's going on. It's like, didn't we learn our lesson? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You'd, you'd think we think we would have. We we seem to want to try to repeat history a lot, though. I mean, I think we're we're either attempting to go back to Calvin Coolidge economics, or we're attempting to resurrect the Gilded Age, one of the two. But <laughs> and it's never a good idea to try to do that. No, especially if you're going to do them both simultaneously. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to resurrect two times. Oh, I didn't bring an extra cauldron, and I'm fresh out of Newt's eye. <laughs> Call Gingrich. Um, so politics this year is, uh, do you see the gamesmanship that's going on? And there's a ton. Have you watched TV lately? <laughs> oh, Harry, Harry Reid's been spectacular, in my opinion. Um, okay, let's talk about it. So he came out, was it last week? Yeah, I want to see. Yeah, last, last be, week or the week before? It hasn't been that long. It's become incredibly contentious in the last two days, but uh, or it's been talked about much more in the last two days, or at least all of the the Hill and the DC papers have started writing about it. Oh, really? Um, so, for those of you who have been living under a rock, Harry Reid came out and said that um, Mitt Romney hasn't paid taxes for ten years, and he said he got it from somebody who worked with Mitt at Bain Capital, and that's why he won't release his tax returns. Uh, what have you heard? Um, yeah, I mean, that's essentially what it is. I mean, everyone's kind of wondering who it is. I mean, part of me hopes that Harry Reid and Sean McCain were just reminiscing about the old days when they could be friends and McCain let something slip. Because ironically, the one person that could say yes or no and would actually have, or one would think he would, the public would have the confidence to believe him in this issue is John McCain, who has seen 23 years of Mitt Romney's records, but he hasn't said anything yes or no on the issue. Right, well, he's he's not the only one because his campaign saw it. It wasn't mm-hmm. like he was the only one letting a room with a box. Well, you can look it over, but his campaign saw it. So his campaign manager probably saw it. He probably saw it. His advisors definitely saw it. So we're talking a group of 10 to 15 people know this stuff mm-hmm. outside of Mitt's family, and Mitt's family and business partners probably know this stuff. So overall, we're talking 40, 50 people probably know it. Outside of the IRS, the IRS, of course, knows it, but they are legally bound to not <laughs> say anything. Um, and, yeah, there's been, I guess, how do you pronounce his name? Reitz? Priebus? Uh, Re- Re- yeah, Reitz Priebus. Uh, he went on, I guess it was Meet the Press, and he called <laughs> Harry Reid a dirty liar. I'm not going to go down this path. Meh, 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 meh. Oh, adjust your toupee, pumpkin. <laughs> um, and he was, he was complaining that, you know, Reid has made this up. And it's like, well, there's a real easy way to prove it. I mean, that's all, all Harry Reid has saying. Especially the former boxer that Harry Reid is, he knows Romney's on the ropes with this, and he can throw haymakers all day long. Right. <laughs> because either there is nothing there, and Romney's waiting till the end of September to release them and say, look, I'm scot free. Or there's something incredibly damaging, which I think it's. More the latter. <laughs> well, considering how bad the storm has gotten, I mean, politically, okay, you, you look at everything that you do as a politician and when you're running a race and you, you have to weigh the pros and cons of everything because everything has pros and cons. Everything that you do is going to piss off someone. You get a PhD in game theory. <laughs> right, exactly. And so you, you look at this and you go, okay, what would be the pros of making this into an issue? Because as soon as you don't release them, especially because his dad was the one who pioneered releasing your tax returns, and this is family legacy stuff that he's fighting against, um, which I'm perfectly happy to do in my family, but I'm not running for president. <laughs> At least not yet. Never know about the future. 
Um, but it was his dad who pioneered this, and if he's not going to do it, he has to know there's going to be a political cost to that. What what could be the political gain from it? From releasing him? No, from or not releasing him. From not releasing him? I mean, even if he didn't pay taxes, even if his tax bill was effectively zero because he lost money for 10 years... Where's the where's the problem with that? There are so many Americans that have lost money over the course of time and had a zero dollar tax bill and, or gotten everything refunded. Most people understand that, you know. And it's like, yeah, my tax rate was zero because I lost this amount of money. That's an easy explanation, it, I would think, and it's a reasonable one because that's how our tax code works. It's not mm-hmm. one that people particularly like to hear. Well, I, th- I, think, I think that's the thing you just hit the nail on the head. It's I don't think people. Have- People understand that that's how the tax system works, but it doesn't mean they're okay with it. Like, no one thinks GE should get $15.4 billion in tax returns. Right. Um, they think that's, that's wrong. Right. They, I, would, I don't think that anybody should be getting uh, um, uh, subsidies <laughs> and not paying taxes. You know. Yeah. I mean, he's just got to have his money everywhere in the world is my, what, what I'm thinking. I mean, every... Every tax loophole that he can that he can find. I mean, I think, I mean, based on some of the things that some of the Republicans have said in the past, it seems almost like they've been sampling how that would work or not. I mean, I don't remember which which senator or governor it was, but if one of them in the past had said that it might have been Lindsey Graham that it's American to exploit tax loopholes, and it seems almost like <laughs> it seems almost like some of these comments that these safer senators and governors are making are trying to test the waters and see so. How bad of a reaction are we going to get from this? Uh, it's American to exploit tax loopholes. Well, it's certainly American to write them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, like I said, we're, we're returning to Coolidge economics. So. <laughs> yeah, um, I was discussing with, oh, as my iPad decides to alert me to something. Um, I was discussing with Eddie, uh, I don't remember if it was on a show, if we were just discussing it, um, the... Uh, flat tax mm-hmm. concept, and you know when we're talking about whether we should go back to it, and I'm I'm you know while I'm not I don't believe in a regressive tax, I think that if we just went with a flat tax, it'd be less regressive than what we have now because we have these billionaires that pay three percent. It's like, well, come on, guys, you know you made all this money, pay your taxes. I mean, uh, Jefferson, when he was in when the founders were all together. It was had a really interesting day. They were talking about how there would be an inequality of property with, with landowners and trying to figure out how they, they could alleviate it. And uh, Jefferson said, well, everyone below this amount of property just shouldn't pay taxes. And if you have more than this amount of property, you should. And then if you have more than that amount, but you have way more than this guy, you should pay more than this guy. Right. And because, I mean... Democrats need to start quoting the Founding Fathers. And remember that the Federalist Papers were written by pro-government people. And remember, um, to quote E.J. DeYoung from a recent talk that I have listened to him, the Constitution starts with we, the people. It's not I, it's not them, it's not you people. these individuals. It's not Anne Romney, it's not you people. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not these 13, these 13 states will abide when they think it's okay and then not when they don't. <laughs> and that one sort of square state with the weird droopy bit on the side will argue in yeah. its own legislature. Yeah, they I mean, think Democrats need to... The Tea Party seems to have a monopoly for no reason on, on the founders. <laughs> well, they have a... You know, the, the whole thing about the founders, and 
I, I understand where you're coming from, and I think you're right. We do need to um, embrace the more liberal side of the founding fathers and point out that this was what they did. But, you know, the other thing that we need to point out is the founding fathers were rebels. They rebelled against a lawful institution that they were part of. They were traitors to that system. Mm-hmm. You know, every single one of them had a death warrant over their head from the British. That's the way it worked. Yeah, that's, that's part of the declaration. You sign your honor and your life to the cause. <laughs> right. And, and you know, so history is written by the winner, obviously, and that makes a difference in how you look at it. But don't think that these people that disagree with you aren't doing it because they, uh, or, or, or the, rather that they are doing it because they're just wanting to disagree with you. They actually see something that they need to rebel against. And that takes, you know, both the left and the right are, are guilty of forgetting that. Um, but the founding fathers were far more liberal than the Tea Party makes them out to be, as you said. I think they were actually liberals. I mean, it's, I, think, I think it's incredibly difficult to write the history of America and ignore Hamilton. You, yeah. You can't do it, or to ignore Clay, or... I mean, if you're really going to cut the progressives out of history, which is kind of what the Tea Party wants to, is victimize them all. You, I, who are you left with? You're left with... Because the conservatives, I mean, I can name one conservative, but that was Benedict Arnold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you have the, the, the Gilded Age presidents. I mean, that's like... Harrison, Tyler, the ones that nobody knows about. <laughs> right, but they weren't, they weren't founding fathers. I mean, oh, no. They, you know, of the founding fathers, you're dealing with people who literally looked at a system and said, this isn't working, we must come up with something new. Mm-hmm. And had the courage of their own convictions to say, yes, I will put my life on the line for this because I know it's important for my country. I know it's important for my people. And it's not, I want to take it back. It's not, I want to destroy education. It's not, I want to make things worse. It's that I want to make things better. And for the Tea Party to, to then co-opt that and say, well, we're going to take it back to what it was when the Founding Fathers were there, that's not even what the Founding Fathers would want to do. Mm-hmm. Founding Fathers would look at the Tea Party and go, shush, just shush. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I agree. But yeah, I don't, I can't think of, I mean, you could do certain Jefferson quotes, I guess you could attribute some of their attitudes to him, but... He didn't govern that way, so. Um, well, and, and his, I think you can take quotes out of context and attribute them to anything, especially because they were using a different style of mm-hmm. English than we use. Yeah. So there's a lot of, well, did this mean yeah. this, or does it mean something else? Um, that goes into that, but it's just it's weird. I mean, and you've got. <laughs> I went to some meeting a couple years ago, actually last year, and uh, they had put out. Um, the clauses of the Constitution, or the amendments of the Constitution, but had listed them as articles. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, we, we kind of did away with the articles. If you can't tell the difference between an amendment and an article, we have an issue, mainly that you can't read. <laughs> and, you know, I, I ended up in an argument with um, one of the Tea Partiers, and I finally just ended it because he wasn't listening and he wasn't going to ever listen. I just ended it with, I'm sorry, the education system has failed you so miserably because you're an idiot and there's nothing I can do about that because you refuse to learn. Do you think that's all at all reflective of the, the bodies that we have in Congress or like an accurate representation of the two bo- schools of thought, conservative and liberals and institutions? Um, 
No, I think they're very, there are some very well-educated true conservatives, but they tend to not be the Christian conservatives. Mm-hmm. Like, there's this whole, this is the problem that I have with um, uh, the, the conservative movement, and I use air quotes, <laughs> and I don't have my air quote sound. Um, you still haven't figured you, out what it would you, be. Yeah, you, I was going to say, you've been complaining about not having an air quote sound for a while. <laughs> Ever since the first episode with Kelson, I have no air quotes on. But um, the conservative movement is, um, there's two parts to it. There's the true conservative movement, which is about you know being fiscally responsible. Don't spend so much money and don't tax your people so hard. And don't uh, don't promise your money in so many ways that you're left with nothing to do if something goes wrong, if a disaster strikes. Katrina would be a great example of that. Um, Then you have the conservative Christian movement, which is very much about, we have to go back to how things were in the Bible. And I would like to point out, in the Bible, there's a lot of lies. Because they call what is currently, and I don't know what it was like because I wasn't alive 2,000 years ago. I'm not that old, people. But the land that they refer to as the land of milk and honey is literally filled with sand. Um, and I've seen milk and honey, and I've seen sand, and they don't look anything alike, and they certainly don't taste the same. And don't ask how I know that. Uh, skiing accident. Um, <laughs> but you're left with... You know, they want to go back to this um, idealized thing that they get preached to them every week that is the supposed Garden of Eden. And then you get the Mormons who think the Garden of Eden was in Missouri. Um, I've been to Missouri. It wasn't. Uh, you just have this crazy... Their idea of conservative is take everybody's rights away and make them and live in this biblical the- theocracy. And they call themselves conservatives because they want to take everything back. And... But they're not conservatives yet. They're part of the conservative, the overall conservative movement, and it's very disconcerting to watch the two sides of the of the Republican Party not figure that out. That they're really not related in any way, shape, or form, even though they're using the same word. Mm-hmm. It's a homonym. It has <laughs> completely different meanings for each of them, and 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 like the conservative side of the, the the fiscally conservative side of the Republican Party tends to be very well educated they get an idea of how government works and they just want to slow it down it's not that they don't think the government should be, you know they understand what government's function is does it, they don't think it needs to be as big as it is does the David Brooks branch really still exist though? Uh, I mean I think if I think they're I mean Senator Luger was arguably the most liberal Republican in the last last well, yeah, other than the two main legislators, but they still are two main senators. Um, Olympia Snow and Susan yeah. Collins. Um, and they're both retiring, aren't they? Oh, uh, Collins Snow's, is. Snow's retiring. And Luger got beaten in primary. <laughs> and, and didn't Collins retire as well? Um, she may be retiring in 14 or 16 whenever yeah, she's, she's up. Yeah, she's not up, but yeah. Um, Interesting. And it, I lived in Maine for a while and, and saw their politics. And Maine, being, you know, Maine's a rural state, even mm-hmm. though it's East Coast. It's, it's, most of the state is rural. Most of it's farming. They raise potatoes. They were the largest potato uh, farming state in the nation until um, Simplot bought all the land in Idaho. Mm-hmm. You know, and they still raise a ton of potatoes. They, that's what they do. It's, and it's a very conservative place. It's also a lot of French. <laughs> um, but it's still socially liberal. Because uh-huh. they're French. Um, actually, I don't know why. I just, I just think it's interesting. So you end up with you know, two Democrats that are fiscally conservative but socially liberal, and that makes sense to me. Two Republicans? Yeah, or yeah. two Republicans, <laughs> sorry. Well, they seem like Democrats to me, but I was raised in Montana. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's, there's definitely something to be said that 
the Republicans can't find a senator who's voting record in the last four years, or the last two years, let's just go since Joe Manchin became senator, they can't find a senator that would have a more conservative or more liberal voting record than Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin's no liberal Democrat by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I mean, there's no Republican to counteract that. Right. I think I think I think there's a problem with that. I mean, the last true liberal Republican was probably Lincoln Chafee, who's now the independent governor of Rhode Island, I believe, hmm. um, who actually endorsed Barack Obama in 2008 and was became an outcast of the Republican Party, whereas Joe Lieberman, who went to speak at the RNC, right, got to keep his chairmanship. <laughs> and yeah, we need to fix that too. I don't understand. Um, so how much of this do you think is because we're winning? And I ask that because um, I see the gay movement. I'm going to come back to that. I see the gay movement, and we're winning so many battles left and right. We're, we're, we've got marriage equality in six states now, and uh, Prop 8 looks like it's going to do very well. It may not win, but it looks like it's doing very well. Um, yeah, the public opinion is definitely moving in our direction um, overall. But then you have these pockets of hate that are fighting back, and it's, the, it's sort of the last bastion of these screaming people. And my theory is that as we get closer to the finish line, as we get closer to winning, these people fight back harder and louder because they know they've, if they don't, they've lost. And even if they have lost, they're going to get loud and, and obnoxious. And I wonder if that's happening across the political spectrum on all issues. You know, they're, they're really starting to lose. So we get the Tea Party, who is nuts. <laughs> and there's no nice way to put that. They're nuts. Um, and it's, a, it's just a backlash to the direction that we're going in. So you see these little pockets, they get smaller and smaller, but they get louder and louder to hide the fact that there's fewer and fewer involved. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's, it's a nice thought that those bastions aren't going to exist. I mean, there are still, still pockets where people don't think interracial marriage is acceptable. Oh, yeah, we just had the church a week ago that didn't want yeah. to do a marriage. Was, oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah, I mean, um, I mean, Lovey Virginia was in her... In her Loving Virginia. Yeah, I mean, that was pretty, pretty recently in terms of history. <laughs> um, yeah, 1968? Yeah. Is that right? Something like that. Yeah, I mean, there's still lots of lots of places in the South where disagreeing with that that that, that case decision is a popular belief. <laughs> yeah, and, and 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 I understand that, but they're not loud and they're not well not thought anymore. of. You know, and now when the when that's brought up to the public eye and sunshine's put on it, everybody <laughs> goes, "Oh, you douchebags." <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, it, 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 anymore. I mean, it. Right. When, when, when it happened, I'm sure it was, was a big deal. I mean, t Texas and Virginia both had attorneys there, so um, um, fighting, fighting for them to still have, their, or have the ability to block interracial marriage. So I mean, clearly there were, there were very loud, opinionated, and clearly I mean, well-educated. If a state's going to send you to defend something, you have to be somewhat intelligent. Not right, but... <laughs> well, yeah, and there's, there's that whole thing, and, and this is part of what we run into in a lot of politics, is you can have an intelligent person who has completely wrong information. <laughs> um, and you can have an intelligent person that is absolutely disingenuous and lies. Um, speaking of, there was something this morning from Romney's campaign about um, the Obama campaign has sued to restore late voting in Ohio and a couple mm -hmm. other states that had been taken away, but it was left in place for military members, but not for regular, for civilians, for every other voter. 
And, you know, I have a problem with that. I, I think if you take it away, you take it away from everybody or you leave it in place. If it's good for any one voter, it's good for every voter. And you don't have dichotomies of how voters vote. I'm mm-hmm. sorry, that's just an unacceptable yeah. thing. And You don't get to cherry pick the people that are going to vote for you or right. who you perceive are going to vote for you. Right, exactly. And um, what he came out with today is that Romney's statement was, well, he can't believe that the president is suing to remove the right to vote from the military. It's like, um, what? Yeah, I think... I think that, that may cost him more than he's expecting as well. I think that was a bad move. Yeah, I mean, I think the, think the Obama campaign's already started to hit back with policemen and firefighters being the people they're fighting for. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of with the, the idea that you were talking about, if you're going to if you're, if you're stand up for this right, it should be a right for all people, not just a right for... Well, yeah, because the, then it's not a right, it's a privilege. Yeah. And voting is not a privilege. Pro- voting is a right. That's mm-hmm. all there is to it. You know, um, there's... Uh, God. Yeah, it's, it's really... Voting laws are strange things. I mean, I think if you're if you're going to have federal elections on the ballot, I don't understand how voting laws can be different in different states. Um, I mean, when we all vote for president and we're electing the people that we're going to send to the Senate or to the House of Representatives or things that are at the federal level, I think voting in Montana should be the same laws as if you were voting in Louisiana or if you're voting in California. Um... I guess I agree with that. I never really thought of it that way. I always assume that, you know, like the voting laws, it's the registration side of it that's always different. Mm-hmm. You know, the actual can I vote is usually the same. Although I guess in some states, if you are a felon, you lose the vote. In some states, you get it back after a certain amount of time. I think that's... That to me seems to be anti-American. I mean, I understand that you've done committed some act that you probably shouldn't have done. Yeah, one, well, I can understand that you don't get to vote while you're incarcerated. Oh, I can, actually, I... I mean, when you, when you get released, you're going back into the American workforce. I think you should have some say in the country you're going back to. But. Yeah, I, I, the whole concept right. of, well, <laughs> now we're getting into a discussion of prison. We, 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 we don't want to have um, political rallies at, at, at prisons promising pardons. <laughs> <laughs> now, I can't say I'm going to pardon you, but... Um, yeah, that would be a problem. Um, I think that there, on some level, I understand why you don't want to let criminals have the vote back, I guess. But it's just, it seems very bizarre to me. And it's like, we let them drive again, and that's far more dangerous than one <laughs> we, vote. We, we, we let them pay their taxes again. <laughs> we we which, expect them we, to. Yeah, which, which, certainly. But you have a whole taxation without representation thing, it seems. Right. You know, yeah, if we're going to strip them of their rights, I think that we better have a really good reason for it. And I don't know that we've ever come up with one in many cases. But, you know, there's other, you know, whether incarcerated, we have come up with a good reason to strip them of their rights. But once they're out, the idea is behind prison originally that it's supposed to rehabilitate them and let them back into society to be useful, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not making this up, am I? No, I, I. So we're just not very good at that. Huh. Which probably says more about our society than about our prison, uh, our prisoners. Hmm. <laughs> anyway, so um, let's handicap a couple races. How do you think they're going? Um, I think Steve Bullock's doing well in the governor's race. Um, really? Or at least it seems, seems like he is. Um, See, and I haven't seen a lot out of either one of the governor's races. I mean, everything, it's, I mean, it's been a top 10 governor's race in Politico quite a few times. And every time it's been up there, 
um, the attorney general has been the winner. So, um, and I mean, just in terms of fundraising, which is typically the barometer that people use most of the time. Right. He's doing well. Doing very well. Yeah. Um, and then the Senator Tester just was named the winner of July by Politico for the Denny Reberg Senator Tester race. But really what a, what a DC blog website <laughs> handicaps yeah. the race is probably going to be within one point is... Yeah, that one's going to be interesting, and I'm I'm still, I don't understand what Reberg's motivation was to be a senator, but it just seems to be incredibly, incredibly foolish. John Tester's beginning to make some headway in the Senate in terms of where he's becoming a valued member, right? And Dan Reberg sits on a very important committee, and you only serve in the House, and you can only be effective if you have seniority. You right. can't do it, and especially we're not California. There's not. 45 Montanans that go to Congress for us. Right. You can't There's become a leader of the Montana delegation in the House and do anything. You need to create allies, which apparently he's done in the House because he is a, a subcommittee I wonder chairman. if he has, because he's, he's a subcommittee chairman, but he hasn't ever really led anything. I don't know that he's made any allies. I think he just has enough seniority that he's useful to people. And, you know, that's still a good thing. It, mm-hmm. It's still a much better thing for Montana if he had stayed, because... I don't think that the Democrats, and you know, I don't even know who the Democrats would have put up. I don't know that Kim would have would have joined in the race. I think probably some of the others would. I don't know that they would have necessarily won. Um, I think I honestly think Denny would have kept his seat. And well, I mean, not to not to try to give Denny Reber credit, but I think Denny Reber could have probably kept that house seat as long as he wanted to. Right. I mean, and he could have been very useful for the state. He could have done great things for the state. Of course, he could have done great things for the state in the last eight sessions that he's been there, but he hasn't done that either. Yeah, I mean, it's really, really sad when you think about it. If, if it would have been Nancy Kane in that seat for 10 years, what Montana could have received in the last 10 years. <laughs> yeah, that would have been amazing. Well, and plus the news would have been a lot more fun to watch. <laughs> There's a person who likes to use some creative wording. I like her. Um, what about the Danes, uh, Gillen race? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm cheering for Kim. And I think she's got a shot at it. It's, I think it's, it's just going to be a tough, tough race. I think he started with such a big money lead. I mean, no other House candidate, including the fifty thousand Democrats that ran for Congress, um, got to jump into a congressional race with two hundred thousand dollars in their bank account. Right. I mean, when you're starting the race with already enough money to buy the top consultants in D.C to help you raise even more money and you don't have to spend any of it in the primary. Whereas Kim had to spend her money in the primary. Right. Um, and Danes was selected by Eric Cantor and Kevin McCarthy and Paul Ryan as part of their young gun candidate selection, which means they think he's going to be something. So they're going to, they've helped him a lot. And I mean, Rick Santorum just came to Cascade County for him, I think. And, yeah, uh, I can't believe it's going to be him. it's going to be a tough race. I mean, um, I think when you look at how all the other races across the top of the ticket that are statewide are supposed to be tough races as well, I don't think you can count any 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 statewide race really out. Yeah. Uh, let's see. What about uh, Secretary of State? Secretary- That's the interesting one with Brad Johnson running again for something he screwed up last time. Yeah, I mean. Maybe if you erase his 2010 PSC run, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it would be interesting with two former Secretary of States. I also just don't 
don't see how the Republicans nominated him. I mean, That's you, a, a lot of Republicans don't see that. I either. mean, you you were just told no by your home public service commission district that they didn't want to run you for that. And I don't know, I, I don't know many people that like that get, that get told no, you don't get to run for that, and then run for something bigger and win. And and that's what he did. I mean, I I think Linda should win, and she's done nothing to not deserve to win. <laughs> yeah, and she's she's actually been one of the better Secretary of States. She was, I think she's the first woman, too. Yeah. Isn't she? Yeah. So it's it's one of those, you know, she's done a great job. The job is a lot tougher than people think. And, you know, I look at, um, I wrote a really horrible main article about yeah. uh, Aspenlider when he first announced he was running, because he basically announced he was running for the land board. Uh, and it's like the land board is a secondary thing that they do, and it, it cannot be primary. They've got a, so many other things to do. It's a, a perk of the job to serve on it. It's not your main duty. <laughs> right. And, um, and you know, he was just, in, and flat out, he was an idiot about it. He, he did not have the education in place. But over the course of his campaign, he seemed to come across the education. I watched it pretty closely because he was an interesting candidate, simply because he kept learning and he kept evolving while he was running, which is always an interesting thing to mm-hmm. see. And then, and I fully expected him to win. I did, I did as well. I was really, really surprised. And he didn't even come close. It was astounding. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't, I mean, yeah, I don't think it's going to be that close to the race. I think Linda will win much more decisively than last time. Mm, I hope I mean, so. Plus, I can't even remember the last time when McCall wasn't on the ballot. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while. Uh, it's been a long time and $800 million for the landlord. Um, the, uh, let's see, the Secretary, or uh, Secretary of State just did that. Uh, it's early. It's before noon. People work with me. Um, the Attorney General's race. Um, I mean, Democrats haven't lost that race for 20 years, and I don't think, I don't think Steve Bloods done anything to show the Democrats aren't good in the Attorney General's office. Um, Pam Busey's running a good campaign. I think she just picked up the endorsement of the police officers union mm. or association. I don't know what they call themselves. Um, and I mean, Pam's work with Mike McGrath right. was pretty remarkable. Um, but I think you have to expect that that race to be somewhat close. I mean, with how close Tim Fox trying to get Steve Bullock, it's going to be, be a tough race. But I think Pam will win. I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, like, like I said, Democrats have held it for 20 years, and we've done nothing not deserve to have it. And not that it should be a party having or not having it, but right. I think Pam, we didn't nominate a bad candidate. Pam Busey's a great candidate for the office. No, and what's interesting is I think this is another area where the Democrats had great candidates for the primary, too. I, I don't think Jesse would have done a bad job. I don't think he would have been a bad candidate in any way. Um, I, I think he's actually a really good attorney. He's certainly a good legislator. He understands exactly what goes on in Helena, which is tough to understand. That town mm-hmm. is crazy. Um, and I think Pam is a fantastic candidate. I just... I, I'm interested in that race because I don't see Fox doing a lot and yet, he's got a lot of mind share, and I, I wonder if it's left over from the last campaign or. Yeah, it's he's, weird. And the toughest thing about that race is going to be outside money. I mean, when when we're the only state in the in the fifty that challenged Citizens United, if I were 
corporate America and I wanted to try to buy elections, I would be dumping money into Montana's attorney general race. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <sighs> so, in, I think Pam, I think Pam can win. I think she should win. I mean, unfortunately, we're Montana. We're not a big, big state, so we don't have a lot of pulling data, or I haven't seen any pulling data on that race. That I haven't either. And, and you know, that, that also worries me because it can't be that hard to get. Yeah. Uh, it's like, uh, we're, we're a rural state, but we do have phones. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, Lindine and Juno should be fine. I mean, I think Sandy Welch has actually complimented Denise Juno a few times in her, <laughs> in her speeches. And when, when Montana's education rates are getting better, I mean, I don't know how you that. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those. And, and I had Sandy on the show a couple weeks ago, and very interesting lady. Um, don't know a ton about her background, but she comes across as um, perfectly capable of doing the job. And if she wasn't running against somebody who was already doing the job very well, mm-hmm. I think she's a very credible candidate. Um, but you know, she's she's got such an uphill battle because you're talking about somebody who's actually doing the job really well, mm-hmm. you know, and and is well liked. It's like, well, it's, yeah, it's hard to run against that. Yeah, yeah, I, mean, I think um, that's saying that it's the same thing Derek Skies is going to run into, despite Derek Skies also, yeah, his policy views are a little strange at times. <laughs> to be to be generous, um, <laughs> you were far too nice, Mister Moron. Far too nice. <laughs> um, I mean, those are those are two other seats. Um, Democrats have held the OPI and the auditor's office for at least 20 years. Wow. Um, and once again, we've, Democratic policies have done nothing to deserve lose, losing either of those seats. And I don't, I don't think those two are in, even in danger of being lost. I mean, there may be conservative Montana, but I don't think you, I don't think in a, in a state that had nothing to do with the Civil War, you get to wear a Confederate flag around on a jacket like Eric Skies did <laughs> in a parade. <laughs> I mean, we're, 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 we hope not. We're, we're, we're not. We're not the deep south. You don't. You don't get a claim. In, in, in well, and and even those people in the deep south, I would like to point out that is the flag of a bunch of traitors. You probably shouldn't be wearing it. Yeah, it's a it's a, it's a bit ironic. Well, you when when you're calling the the northeast liberals un-American, well, and, well, holding <laughs> a Confederate flag. <laughs> not, uh, not, not to make the obvious point, but I think people know know what it is. <laughs> one would hope. Um, so, how do you think the legislature is going to pan out? Um, Split pretty I, evenly. I think it'll be lopsided again. I mean, we can't do any worse than we had last time. Oh, I mean, so you don't challenge worse, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I have this horrible fear that we'll end up with a bunch of a bunch of new random nuts. We won't have the same random nuts as last time. Well, I mean, Republicans at least showed showed they had the sense to get rid of Bob Wagner and Alan Hale. So those two are gone. <laughs> yeah, but that doesn't mean they couldn't replace them with scarier people. I mean. No, I, I, actually, I don't know if you can find somebody more scary than Bob Wagner when it comes to public policy. I mean, uh, but let me introduce you to my dad sometime. <laughs> <laughs> is, 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 is your dad running? <laughs> no, no, no um, thank God. Um, but no, I mean, in in the House in particular, I don't, I don't think numbers can get worse. I mean, I think thirty-two. I mean, Billy Billy Mcchesney's running unopposed, and he was the only non-blue district or district that could have not been blue last mm. time and he won so i don't think i don't think we really have any any seats in danger in the house if, i think the only place we can go is up no good um senate will be an interesting like there's a lot of tough races all across the across the state i mean we have the potential to gain in the senate and 
Or to lose. Or, or to lose, just just like they do. It's going to be, it's going to be interesting. Um, I, mean, I, I, I think we're going to keep the governor's mansion. So, um, but on the off chance that we don't, it would be nice to, nice to pick up a few Senate seats. Yeah. Um, it'll be, be, an interesting year in Montana politics. I mean, I don't think we've ever seen anything like what this year is going to be. This will be the most money probably ever spent in. Montana on any election, yeah. probably you could combine quite a few years and you still wouldn't even reach the total that's going to be spent. And I mean, yeah, I mean, it's just going to be going to be interesting. Denny, the Reberg tester race, and then the governor's mansion, there's got to be a lot of people across this country that want to see it go one way or the other. <laughs> yeah, I think it'll be, I think we're going to have a lot of more tight races than we expect. I think some of the ones that we think are safe are going to end up being... Um, much closer than we expect. I, I agree with you on most of the ones that you say are safe. I really don't see skis making any inroads. He, he burned a lot of bridges on the other side. Yeah, when, when, when you're a Republican and the Chamber of Commerce won't endorse you, I think you've run into yeah. <laughs> you, 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 you've hit a brick wall. Yeah. Which also, I mean, I don't know a whole lot of people that have served a freshman term and then ran for statewide office. I mean, most of the time, if you're going to go into the House... You serve for a few years before. Yeah, and then, then, then you go into the Senate and step up. And then, then you run statewide, or else you do some great things outside of public office and then run. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know a whole lot of people that run after one term, head for greener pastures. <laughs> or, well, I don't think they're going to be very green for them. But, um, Other pastures, yes. maybe filled with cow poop. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Cool. So, it'll be. so what do you have left for your summer? I know you've got school coming up in the fall, which what school starts in like two weeks, doesn't it? Twenty seventh, yeah. Uh, the week of the twenty seventh. So Wow. And then uh going back to school, big political push for you at all or Um School or or like Yeah, or, I mean or, are you are, I guess I didn't ask, what are you studying in school? Political I'm science? Double majoring in political science and philosophy. Ah. Um which lately with reading E.J. DeYoung and... Um, and doesn't Frankie teach political science? Yeah, Frankie teaches international relations. Ah, cool. Which is a fun subject. I like domestic policy more than international policy. But it's um, <laughs> no, no, no fault of Frankie's. It's just my, my interest. Frankie's, Frankie's a great professor. Awesome. Um, no, I, I really like, I like studying political parties and campaigns and policy and think it's a really, really interesting time to study schools of thought right now, um, especially because I think the term liberal is being grossly misused, and I think conservative is at the same time, but both for the wrong reasons. <laughs> um, no. I think conservative is being applied to a fringe, whereas liberal is being applied to a general. I mean, to, to compare, to say this Supreme Court is liberal, like the 60s Supreme Court is ridiculous, <laughs> or the liberals in this court are the same as those ones is... Because, yeah, philosophy and political science. Very cool. Well, thank you for being on the show. People, if you want to follow Chris, he is on Twitter at Chris Mora IV, because you're the fourth. Yeah. I won't try to say your <laughs> name because it's like an hour long. And um, let's see. Uh, obviously, if you get a chance to, please go in and rate the show. It helps uh, us to pull up in iTunes. We had some blip last week, which was really quite nice. I'd like to see that again. And um, thank you for being on the show. Oh, no problem. Apologies if things just sound like a lot of 
words put together that don't make a sentence. I'm functioning on little sleep. So. <laughs> don't worry, it's before noon. That's how I always sound. <laughs> Have a good one, people.